Jaisal Shaw is a free thinker, a tempered radical, a boundary spanner, a dreamer that does. Innovation is part of Jaisal's DNA, and whilst you can't replicate her incredibly diverse experiences, you can hear how this collective knowledge and wisdom will help define our collective futures. Jaisal has advised governments, universities and corporations about the creation of innovation hubs and precincts, how to embrace and harness digital transformation, and how a space for analogue must always be made. Did I mention she had a small part on Neighbours too? However, Jaisal has no small part in teaching, learning, and embracing new and different ideas and perspectives. Enjoy. Jaisal Shaw, Global Practice Director, D-Lab at GHD Digital. Welcome to Discipline. Thank you, Tony. When you were a youngster, uh, what did you think your job would be when you reached adult life? There were two things that I wanted to do when, when I was going to be big or when I grew up uh, that are not complementary. Uh, one was I wanted to be a doctor because I wanted to help uh, people and had my nurse's outfit and would patch up parents and cats and rabbits, etc. But the other job that I desperately wanted to do was be an explorer and in particular a spy explorer. And I think I know where that came from. Uh, I lived with a family. I live with a very traditional family, but there were a lot of uh, adopted and uh uh, people that we would bring into the house. I had adopted cousins and my my relatives were missionaries. So there was always artifacts that would be coming into the house. And my mum was a voracious reader of the Yellow Spine National Geographic. Right, I remember them, yeah. We had every single one, even the one of the woman, you know, with the green yes, eyes. Yes, yeah, amazing photography. Absolutely. So I grew up with all my, uh, besides schooling, all my knowledge and curiosity outside Five o'clock, I Dream of Jeannie, 5.30, Gilligan's Island, was these books. So they were where I thought my life might go. And obviously those uh, encyclopedias and uh, um, National Geographic Mm -hmm. served you well because you're obviously a good student because you went on and did a Bachelor of Laws at university in Melbourne. Yes. Um, You also had an artistic streak as well, involved in cinematic studies. Yes, Bachelor of Arts, Fine Arts Cinema Studies. But you ended up following the legal side. I did. (laughs) Did you practice? I did. Yeah. yeah. I I don't know if my colleagues would say I practiced well, uh, but I did uh, do my articles at a a, a firm here in in Melbourne that specialised in a corporate and in particular sports law. So we did a lot of work with um, football clubs and soccer and, and others. So I did try that for a little bit. At the same time, whilst I was being a lawyer in the day, I still was in an acting troupe and still did a little bit of work as an actor, voiceovers and had a little bit part on Neighbours. Did which, you really? <laughs> super, super tiny. Mr. Martin's secretary. Mr. Martin's yes. secretary. So my English friends who were backpackers <laughs> found it awesome that they could tell their friends that their friend was on Neighbours. But no, so I, I did all that and I, I kept wanting to do that part of but that. There was a DNA in me that loved telling stories and being in those type of creative endeavours because I wasn't necessarily finding that passion inside law. So I thought perhaps, and I was listening to people around me that said, you, you love that art of advocating and and helping people see things in different ways. Why don't you go to the bar and be a barrister? So I thought I'll try that. So before I did that, I 
I applied for an associateship with a Supreme Court judge in yep. uh, the Supreme Court of Victoria. Yes. So for two years, I was his uh, legal judge's associate. I think we did 21 murder trials in two years. Goodness. And then I realised that unless you were super passionate about law, yeah. I couldn't sustain. That wasn't for me. So yeah. that's when I, I left law. Did you leave with a direction that you wanted to follow? Yes, because my uh, judge who I worked with was um, still, you know, he was a fantastic mentor at the time and he could see that I was passionate about uh, things besides my acting and creative endeavours. I was really passionate about the Asian region and things that were outside Australia. So a role came up at the University of Melbourne at a a non-academic centre called AsiaLink and it was my judge that said, you know, what are you doing? You know, maybe it's an opportunity for you to, you know, go and do some... Spread your wings. Yeah. Yeah. So this role came up and I spent some time um, with with AsiaLink focusing on hyphening off, siphoning off, I should say, my legal skills and BD skills and then really focusing on that particular sort of region for the next eight years or whatever it was. You've now had a decade, I suppose, in the the next phase of your career Mm -hmm. post-law, advising companies and universities on engagement. You're really showing my age, aren't you? (laughs) Partnership and leadership, ideas, eyes to the future, and you've been um, bringing business leaders together, tech leaders, government leaders. You've done your homework. How does this this transformation take place? Interesting. Uh, Yeah, so... so all those things you've said are true in that uh, AsiaLink was a time that then went into about five different roles at the University of Melbourne. So, you know, an HR person would look and say, what, you spent 17 years at the university before you've come back out into industry. But in those five or six roles, all those things happened um, and continue happening in this new role. How did it happen? Um, I think it happened has a lot to do with social network analysis, like to label us all, you know, are we central connectors? Are we domain specialists? And there's this group that they call boundary spanners. Right. And I, and this is not horoscope stuff. This is, you know, good <laughs> good business, business theory. I'm a classic boundary spanner. Um, I get the best thrill and the best satisfaction in my job if I am in sort of sitting at the edge of of either disciplines or, or types of different people's working domains because I love to see where opportunities can be picked from different put people together and then get out of the way. Yeah. So all those roles that I had were often because I wasn't the expert, I was probably what might be called a specialist generalist. Yes. I knew enough about what the neuroscience faculty was doing or enough about what the architects were doing or enough about the IBM or Australia Post or whoever it was that we were working with on the outside to be able to have a, have enough to get their language and then find that sweet spot in between, which is really what innovation's all around, you, all about. You couldn't put an ad together for your mm. sort of <laughs> job that you have. I mean, it's taking all, all this incredible information and being able to um, turn it into something that adds value mm. to those particular disciplines. Yeah, It's often, they're not the normal jobs because the roles that I was often given at the university were the ones that people didn't necessarily want. I often felt I was parachuted into things. But again, I 
I am thrilled by the black box and not understanding what's in it and being able to tack, unpack it and help people see or create a value out of it. Some now talk about this DNA as an like it's an entrepreneurial DNA. Yes. Yeah. If if you've heard people talk about that, so do you create the role or do you make it for you? Do you? Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just what I'm attracted to and yeah. have have fortunately been successful in creating jobs out of this and being promoted out of this type of mindset. Well, this then comes back to this uh, sphere of influence and Mm -hmm. your ability to influence. What is it in yourself that gave you uh, such strength in your own views and, uh, and opinions that you can actually transform the methods of governments? So by being a specialist generalist, by virtue of that or having this, you know, what I've called this more entrepreneurial DNA, you, by virtue of that need to, can't do it alone. I, like I'm a very much a, a, a collaborator and someone that likes to to work with others yep. to, to get somewhere. So a lot of these jobs have not been me on my own. It's about, okay, I can see a challenge or I can see something that might be needed now I need to build a coalition of the willing. The way has always been to to bring others on the journey, you invest in them and where their expertise is. So I've got a lot of mentors that I have found and collected in my life that are quite different to me as well. And so it's how I, I'm constantly learning about things that are outside my area of expertise so that I can influence others. Yep. So, you know, I've been on... Uh, I've been on boards like Melbourne Uni Publishing and I'm not a publisher, I'm a voracious reader, uh, but I didn't know anything about yeah, right. the book industry, but I went and did my homework and and walked in the shoes of people that, you know, go to bookstores or download audiobooks. So I, I suppose, and it could be the, the former actor in me. When you take on a character, the most important thing you have to do is make it feel real not fake, you have to have an empathy. So yep. you need to really step into the shoes of the customer you're trying to sell this to, the board that you're trying to influence. And if you do that and try and get into their heads, it helps you really, you've got a better chance of succeeding. Doing that in a sort of university framework's one thing where, mm-hmm. you know, there's quite a bit of rope to be patient and take your time sometimes with projects. Mm-hmm. Coming into somewhere like a corporate mm-hmm. GHD, how do you have the patience to build a coalition of the willing when there's quite often time pressures to get results? Yes. You're, you're absolutely right, Tony. They're different types of organisations, absolutely. The reality, though, which I sometimes think we all forget about, is that a company a not-for-profit, a government department, a university, they are all just a collection of people. Yeah. Like, what, what, is a, what is a company? It, it, besides strip away its bricks and mortars, it's a collection of people. Yeah. So I suppose I'm constantly thinking about it that way. Um, you know, it's sort of like you're taking off its clothes and then trying to understand it that way so that you you that's why I, I suppose I'm now on the industry side and I would have thought it would be that much different but it's still about influencing 
getting alignment. Alignment. Yeah. And yeah. so uh, the difference is not as bad as I thought, it, not as different as I thought it would be. Yes. But it's a, it's different time pressures and it's it's different restraints and, and different um, ways the structure is made up, of course. But at the end of the day, individuals are people are people. And yeah. Why do these people all turn to Jaisal and say, what does Jaisal think? I mean, there's got to be something that you do very different to others where you're constantly advising these these large organisations. I'm pretty much what you see is what you get. Maybe that's it. Ah, I've never been a... I've never been a typical lawyer. I was never a typical this. I'm, I, I am. I just try and bring all those different parts of my career to every job that I do. And maybe I'm. I've got to this stage in my career now. Ah, oh, I, I can't be anything else. So if this doesn't work for an organisation, <laughs> and they don't, they don't like take it, it or leave it. Yeah, because. Yeah, if there's any time for humans to be what we are as humans and bring that creativity and bring that human side, we're crying out for it. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the changes that technology and transformation brings? I'm optimistic. Yes. I know that there is pain and I know there is so many things that we still need to do. Yep. But I am a believer that we are going to be richer, and I don't necessarily mean in a financial way only, but we are going to be a better, richer place, this planet, for our people, in particular because of this sort of digital data rush that we're in, and yep. we're calling it this sort of new goal rush, this new data rush. Why? I think one of the things, this is the the equity side in me, the thing about this type of world, it's going to make it more transparent, which means it's going to make it more obvious for those that we leave behind. Yes. So from that perspective, as well as the confluence of things such as an incredible millennial generation that are holding we Gen Xs and others to task, again, I'm really optimistic that that force will, will really put the lens on us as well as a spotlight on us, I should say, as well as this this an enablement to be a bit more transparent of who, who wins and who loses. Mm. Uh, it's not going to be all roses, but there is, and this is where storytelling is incredibly important, for every, you know, job that a West Virginian miner is losing in the US, there are five, ten times as many new solar technician mm. roles that are coming Onto the market, so and I wonder, you know, we have our we have our challenges where media feels that we just want to hear the doom and gloom, but there are so many great stories yes. to be yeah. to be heard and to be shared. So I'm I am truly I am truly opt- optimistic, mm-hmm. but we've got to focus on the human part of this digital you know industry 4.0, not this idea that technology will 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 be the leader of it. It's got to be us as humans. Let me focus on that 4.0 for a mm-hmm. second because I caught the train in this morning mm-hmm. and I reckon I bumped into seven people yeah. who weren't interacting with the world. They were interacting with their digital mm-hmm. devices. Yes. Um, so for some, you know, they can focus on the doom and gloom because mm-hmm. whilst you might have an AI revolution and a data-driven insight and transparency, 
the the human elements actually to to some myself included like the human elements coming out of the world rather than being poured back into it. Mm. So I think this is where some of the crunch yes. comes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think some of the buzzwords are good, but a lot of the time all they do is make it even harder for people to feel like they're part of this whole journey. So, you know, we hear about ideas boom and we hear yep. about industry 4.0 and we hear about, yeah, the fourth industrial revolution. Those of us that hear it all the time, it's, it's yes, of course, it's the fusion of the biological, digital and physical worlds, but I think we've got to stop for a minute and say, what does that mean for Joe, who's in the regional Victoria, who yeah. this, or what does this mean for someone else? And that that's where I think there's still a lot of work to be done in education. Yeah, I mean, for a lot of people, it's frightening. Mm. You know, digital innovation, uh, my job's going to be mm. uh, taken by a robot or mm. automation or mm. AI. They're going to replace me and I've got no retraining. I mean, for a lot of people, digital innovation and Transformations a very scary thought. Yes. Um, what's your relationship like with innovation? I have a I, I have a positive relationship with innovation. Uh, again, it's one of those buzzwords. Yeah. So, well, if I can just define it, what innovation means Please. to me that helps. So, you know, because we think about it, you hear lots of things. People call it, you know, oh, it's about an invention, or it's only about a pattern, or it's only about a software. This must be the human in me coming up. So the definition I always use is fresh thinking that creates value. That's kind of it. So from that perspective, uh, I have a I'm I'm passionate about innovation because fresh thinking is about looking at things through different angles and bringing in diverse viewpoints to help create some type of value. And that value might be a new job, might be a new technology, etc. But let's think about humans. Humans have always been innovative. Yes, We've always, always looked at things and gone, how can we improve? How can yeah. we do this? So it's not this new thing that's only just happened because Amazon's become, become of age or Google's, you know, it, it's part of us as, as uh, you know, it's been part of our DNA. So in that sense, I've got a very comfortable relationship with it. My job requires me to be thinking about innovation for how can I help you know our customers and our clients not only survive this wave of digital transformation that's happening, but survive. So thrive, yes, survive. And equally so, here I am sitting in a 91-year-old company. It's clearly it has to have been innovative. Yep. It's still here 91 years later. But what it's done for 91 years might not be fit for purpose for now. So how can I, who is someone that lives and breathes and loves to think about this world, how can I add those things that I've learned from adjacent industries or from working with startups or working with um, others, bring that into an organisation and ensure that it survives and thrives for another 91 years? Yeah, it comes back to, um, you know, for you, this uh, discussion of entrepreneurs versus mm. entrepreneurs, mm. digital disruption. What is happening, you know, in this thinking? Why are companies disrupting themselves? Obviously to uh, not stand still. Yes. But is it a fear that's driving that or is it a desire or are there elements of both? Ooh, maybe elements of both. Uh, Disrupt or be disrupted, disrupted. You know, I mean, that's a fear message. Yes. And then you've got, you know, um, as you were talking about solar companies, mm -hmm. you know, creating... Um, 
ecologically sustainable forms of energy. That's a positive yes. message. But that might also be driven by climate fear. Yes. So so there's, there's companies and, you know, a set of individuals and then we've got to think about the context of what they're in. So the forces outside the company or the NGO or whatever are, are obviously going to impact on that company's decision whether it's going to you know, change or transform First time ever we've got five generations working under the same roof. That's that's too cool for me. That's exciting. There's so much in that, that we can learn from five, you know, baby boomers right through. First time in history we've got this fusion, this convergence of biological, physical and digital world. Wow, that's that's a force outside. What's a third factor? This mentioned it before, this data gold rush. I was yep. reading um, last week something like 91% of data in the world right now has been created in the last two years. That blows my mind. So you think that world that we're in, I mean, we've gone from you and I would have had our KB to megabytes to we're now terabytes, petabytes, there's yeah. going to be exa, yorta and zeta. So that that's this big shift this in is quantum this big computing. Shift. Yeah. The other one that you know blows my mind is some of the things that have always been you know, out there in the in the uh, innovation space are not new, but it's just that the business models of business are changing. So, you know, we hear about Uber not you know, having cars, et cetera, but the first um, auto pedals, which we now see all these electric scooters everywhere, the first auto pedals were in 1901. Yeah, right. And it was just that they didn't have a business model to scale them. Uh, so, so there's all these curious confluence of those factors outside. So I think that's... That's impacting on companies. But I also think it's this drive of these entrepreneurs yes. that are inside companies that there's a great expression for entrepreneurs, tempered radicals, dreamers that do. Yeah. They're inside companies and, and they're saying, we want to use the resources, the power of the brand, the organisations that we're in to to transform them in order to yeah. make good, transform yeah. for good. Yeah. So it's it's actually a really exciting time to be inside a company that is thinking deeply about how will it survive and thrive because it's got a chance to step up. It's got a chance to transform communities for good. Yep. It's got a tr- chance to allow those entrepreneurs inside to make a difference. I have a very uh, an interesting story. It stuck with me about uh, entrepreneur and um, um you know, creative types within business. Mm-hmm. My old boss, when I was working as a lawyer in London, talked about a new CEO coming in and he was um, running part of Shell. Yes. And the new CEO came in and saw this guy getting a tour of the facility, sort of guy with his feet up on a table reading a newspaper. And the CEO said, well, this will be my first call of action. That person's fired. And everyone said, oh, no, 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 no. You can't fire him. And the CEO said, why not? And everyone said, that's the most important person in the company. That's our ideas person. So that always stuck with me that, you know, if you get rid of yes. the innovation and yes. the ideas coming through the yes. business. Now, obviously, things are a lot more fluid than yes. back then where someone yes. had the job of being the ideas person. But, but the thing that sometimes worries me is um, we we have these areas inside organisations where Yes, you know, they'll have the chief entrepreneur in residence or they'll be the area that is the only area where 
the cool kids get to stick the post-it notes on the on the wall. Yes. And, and I worry about that because that, to me, signals only those people have ideas. Yes. And for me, uh, you know, as a self self identified uh, entrepreneur, we don't all come in same shapes and sizes. Yeah. We're not all Mark Zuckerberg's in our black t shirts that are twenty two that have post it notes, you know, in our handbags. And you don't want that because you don't know where the next best idea that could transform for good or could come from. So yeah. when we talk about post-it notes, the, the guy at 3M, that was a... he, he wasn't sitting in the chief entrepreneur's office. No. These aha moments are due to serendipitous bump encounters, Yeah, a series of diverse inputs, people in the right place together, and that magic happens. So yeah. as much as I love having uh, an opportunity to drive an innovation practice and culture where I am, I don't want it seen that only we, in your analogy, have the newspaper with our feet up against up on the seats reading the ideas. I don't think that works these days. So, in this uh, this world of you know digital and transformation, mm-hmm. what's the counterbalance? Analog. I mean- I'm such a believer in, and it's the physical part. We keep talking about digital, digital. IoT, AI, VR, ML, uh, cloud, not the Cumulus style, but cloud, all that digital, fantastic. But if we do not have analog, i.e. we do not create physical places for people to come together to share tacit information, to build trust, we might as well go home. And there are too many examples, not only through human history, but right now of the cradles of innovation whether it's the one made of silicon, Silicon Valley, or maybe if it's uh, Tel Aviv or if it's London, and you know this from your visits to on you know in, to innovation precincts around the world, Tony. Why do they work? They work because they bring the very best together, and it's yeah. like this magnet of of talent and passion and hunger. But yeah. they bring them together physically. Yes, that's the analog. That's that's. Absolutely key. Yeah. It cannot be all seen that it's digital and this online world that's going to do it. Yeah. So, yeah, that is the counterbalance. And I fight really yeah. hard to ensure that place matters in this innovation conversation. Yeah, it's funny. You can have all the uh, digital bits and pieces you want, but if you don't have uh, some of the more traditional things like communication and yes. ability for people to talk openly and yes. freely... And that all breaks down. But also to to tinker together and to not every startup, but you know, most startups these days that are successful have some type of digital application or something that's embedded in how they're going to be scalable and and work. But you and I've spent enough time um, hanging out with with our startup founders and in startup accelerators and incubators. Why do we have incubators and why do we have these places? Because they got to iterate. They got to prototype. They got to test here. They got to argue. Um, I had a discussion with a young entrepreneur once doing a masterclass about you know me being the custodian for how important place was, and he put his hand up and said to me, "Well, think about someone like Steve Wozniak. I mean, he was in his garage, and you know he didn't he didn't care. He was in his own place. This idea he wasn't part of a community." And I said, "But every Friday night, I think it was." Steve went down to the Stanford Coders Club or Computer Club and would take 
what he was doing and go and, you know, suss it out with his fellow computer, you know, friends and aficionado. So there is a need for place. Yes. There absolutely is. And some would say, oh, well, you can do it on WebEx or you can do it on Skype or Zoom. I'm thinking, really? Have you tried building relationships through WebEx and Skype and Zoom? (laughs) Not when you're trying to build something that's, you know, a new a new business or a new technology yeah. place is so important. Yeah, it was funny. Years ago, there was an article I read about how um, GoToMeeting or Zoom or one yes. of these, Skype, was going to be the death of international travel because, well, why do you have to meet someone where you can just Skype in? And you look at somewhere like uh, China where before taking on partners, mm. it's essential that they've wined and dined together yes. and met and they feel good about the relationship. Yes. So. These analog elements in business are are as essential and should be innovated as much as the digital elements. We have so much to learn from those rising nations. If you've ever worked with uh, India and been on any trade missions, you know, there are the Australian companies that go there and they think they're going to sign the deal on day one and haven't budgeted that they're going back six times, similar to China, because it's about relationships. And, you know, I, as I said, I'm fascinated with hubs and precincts and spaces where innovation can flourish. And I think because I'm through, you know, that arts, cinema studies and um, arts degree, you know, I did a lot with history. So I love looking back to make sense to help me think about where we're going forward. And, you know, our first co-working spaces were the Renaissance Guilds. And when you think about what was in the Guild, it wasn't just one bunch of engineers. I mean, if you think of, you know, Leonardo, it was... Artists, scientists, engineers. Yes. They weren't called urban planners there, but people that were thinking about resilient cities. And then you think of um, the first coffee houses that started in London when they were bringing back these magical things yep. that they found from foreign lands. They congregated together, they tested, they smelt, they, you know, what did this do? So again, it's about places where human or well, humans need to. But, but think back. To those times, like even when you think about Renaissance, Florence, they had patrons, you know, they had the Medicis and they had those type of families that said, we're going to back something, of course, to make themselves rich at the time. But there was that idea of about societal good yes. as well. I mean, they weren't just investing in the very best architects to design the Duomo. They were investing in artists who could help tell the science in a way that was palatable for people. And I think if there's anything that's missing at the moment is potentially that value of bringing the, especially in this digital world, the creative class and then this sort of entrepreneurial tech class bit more together yeah. because I think that's what's going to be needed. And then what about the the broader ecosystem? Mm -hmm. You talked about accelerators and incubators that you've been involved Mm in. I mean, clearly you've articulated um, why these are important, but who needs to drive these agendas? Is yes. it industry that drives them, government? Is it collective incentivization? Yeah, that's a that's such a hot topic. Well, it has been hot for quite a few years now, and what I love that it's on the agenda. Um, the the part that 
sometimes is a little frustrating is that everyone everyone thinks they need an innovation precinct. Uh, you know, they'll come to a big city or they'll go to Silicon Valley or Tel Aviv or Boston and say, oh, we want one of those and yep. we want it back in yep. <clears throat> some part of regional, uh, regional Australia. I think the challenge is you've got to make it fit for purpose and you've got to, first of all, play to your competitive advantage. Yes, there is an absolute imperative for it to have a, a, a government, a, a government um, a part, a partnership or, or a government intent, but they can't be driven by developers alone. Yeah. Absolutely not. Uh, a developer will, will think if I put a coffee machine on the corner with a barista, I've suddenly created an innovation district, and that's no don't real... Forget, don't forget the ping, top, ping pong tables. <laughs> yeah, and the, and the, uh, the bean bags, yes. that's, that's all it yeah. takes. Absolutely not. So there are a couple of things that are needed and have spent a lot of time looking at these, thinking about them, was part of the creation of the one that uh, the University of Melbourne is launching next year. Uh, you need good top-down governance that's not too heavy, but involves government um, and an anchor. And that anchor, depending on again the, the competitive advantage you're playing into, the anchor could be a hospital. Yep. The anchor could be a university. Yep. The anchor could be a set of incredible manufacturing SMEs. It could be a, a group of those. So if you have a an innovation district that's focusing on life sciences and biotech. Amazing if you can have a hospital and a yes. research-intensive yep. university next to each other, of course. So that's great. But there are other factors. So light touch governance, you need a bottom-up activation, which are your entrepreneurs and your mavericks and your entrepreneurs that are hungry to come together. And that's made up of startups and that type of ecosystem, as well as those that hang around that type of ecosystem. So your VCs and your IP lawyers and your accountants that are often willing to do a bit of pro bono work, but are in it for the long haul. Um, you need a physical space. Yep. It's not a virtual in innovation district. Yep. You need people that are invested and are incentivized to curate experiences. Serendipitous bump encounters don't just happen sometimes serendipitously. Sometimes they are curated to yep. ensure that the different groups bump into each other. So you need that type of programming. Yes. You need some hard metrics to show those that have seeded it that you are building a place where the quantitative metrics might be around patterns, uh, investment, uh, real estate, many things. The qualitative is the stories. It's yeah. the flow on, um, the push through to other other industries, uh, etc. So there's many, many elements that make it up and it's again back to your guilds. It's not a new thing that five years ago we've just discovered, but because of the digital economy that we are now living in and this era of entanglement that we're living in, if there, this is the time for place-based innovation ecosystems to shine. So we're we're in a really yeah. good spot for it. And the other thing I was going to say is the metrics you mentioned. Mm-hmm. You know, measuring outcomes. Mm-hmm. There seems to be a massive tendency to only want to measure them on a lot of financial metrics. And if you're talking about biomedicine, I mean, that's not necessarily going to be measured in, um, you know, financial numbers, not in the short term. And if people that, you know, like these entrepreneurs have this vision that success is Steve Wozniak, and if I'm not achieving 
unicorn type status with what comes then Mm. then that's a failure Mm. for it as well there's a lot of as you say storytelling that Mm. needs to go on isn't there Mm. and you need those handrails that people can be successful at those different levels and if you don't uh think about if you don't spend time at the beginning trying to set a course of metrics that are more than those hardcore financial ones, you really do set yourself up to fail. And I've got a great example in one of the innovation districts that we were building. You know, I talked about the requirement of the curation and programming space um, program and also having spaces for that to happen. So one of the very big multinationals that we were bringing into the space, um, the people that were going to be in it were those that understood the value of why you would align yourself to an innovation district that had other tenants that were different to them, startups, artists, government, research bods, and university, because they knew that they would tap into that ecosystem. But the fight that they had going back into their company to the person that ran the retail tenancy part of their business that was going to sign off on the lease, the person back at HQ, why are we paying for the the um, seminar space and the shared spaces that are not inside the 250 square metres that we're, we're leasing. And so you have to have these people inside those organisations that get the value to understand how to sell it back into that person inside their business that says you have to understand we are not just buying the 200, sorry, renting, leasing the 250 square metre office we're, we're investing in something that's bigger than us. Yeah. And they're the, they're the, they're the hard fights. That's the analogue innovation the that the bean in- counter yep. understands. That so it's how do we just, do it? Yeah. We brought in those bean counters on a day that we were having a hackathon downstairs yeah. and artists, it was Melbourne Knowledge Week, so we were having this particular artist um, sort of day downstairs. We had one of the ministers upstairs with someone else that was running and we and it was like, well, we kind of engineered it that way to be a day. Every day was a buzz there, but we engineered it in a way so that those then came in and went, oh, hang on, oh, I, I can see, I can see the success, and I can see we're going to be part of this. If we hadn't have done that, and on a piece of paper, it was just this idea of you're paying for that, you're leasing that, but you also need to take this extra space that's not really yours. I don't think they would have got through. And I, I wanted to also just hark back to what you said about chance encounters mm-hmm. because, you know, the serendipity of it all sounds very romantic. Mm. But one of the examples I got, I can't remember where it was. It was somewhere in Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm. There was a, a facility we went to where they had the best um, quantum computers, the best yes. biochemists. It was a multidiscipline type campus. Yes. And in the middle of the campus was the playground because all the – People live there with their families and the kids all played at the playground. And they called the whole thing the sandbox effect where they made a breakthrough in malaria. How did it happen? Talking at the sandbox with the kids playing in the the sand and the lady working on the biochemistry said, I'm Mm -hmm. really struggling because I've got all this data and I can't process Mm -hmm. it. One of the other people in the sandbox said, we're working on a new quantum computer. Yes. We think we have the grunt to take this data and make it meaningful. Yes. And there you go, two completely separate disciplines that would never usually so convert. So busy, so time poor, so those silo. people, 
but if it wasn't that you had that chance encounter. So you've got to engineer to get them closer so that the probability that they bump or you strategically engineer those those um, encounters is yeah. core. Yeah. Yeah, there was an amazing um, – I've seen it so many times yeah. in, in being part of those – those districts, and that's the qualitative metric where you've got to tell those stories, you've got to give examples, and you've then got to, in some ways, reverse engineer success stories where people just think it happened magically, and you work back to understand where the, the kernel began. And there's an example two years later from your sandbox story, you know, they might be on Nature, front of Nature magazine, talking about this discovery, and no one would know that if it, if it was not for those things that happened at the beginning. Yeah, and it all comes down to people being able to communicate yes. across traditional boundaries. Yes. So and, and bringing the wherever you can, you bring the very best of yes. those diverse groups together into a space. So uh, at MIT, another cradle of you know incredible uh, intellects out there in Boston, um, they have a, a building called Building Fourteen, and it was this makeshift building. After the war, they sorry it was used during the World War Two, but after the war, it sort of left over, and so a little bit like um, you know, anyone that got in there got a space, and so they had people that were from the music academy next to engineers, yep. next to railway enthusiasts, next to psychologists, and it turns out there was a New York Times article: the most patents MIT have um, recorded have all been from people that have been inside that building. Yeah. Because, again, it's that sounds, diversity. Sounds very yeah. similar. BASF came out of that building. Yeah. So many things came out of Really? Yeah. So, again, it's fascinating. Um, what about importance of uh, diversity mm-hmm. in fueling innovative cultures, innovation and, and, and startups? So I love history. I love arts. But I also love nature. And so spend a lot of time thinking about drawing lessons from nature and so there's a there is a part of the world just north of australia and the name now escapes me but it's an area where two diverse ecosystems due to the way the two tectonic plates of the continent smash together that have created these natural ecosystems that are different and it's one of the most diverse places in the world for biological and plant and natural life and it's because of this idea of complete difference so in um, science they talk about uh, the uh, ecotones natural ecotones so where the savannah meets the forest or where an uh, arid area meets a rainforest etc in those uh, adjacent edges the edge is where this most flourishing of anything new. And yeah, when we right. talked before about innovation, yes. innovation is about fresh thinking that creates a value. Yes. So I, I look at that and go, okay, rainforest meets savannah or river meets um, arid land. What's What do we learn from that? So from that perspective, diversity is so, so important, um, not only at a board level and not only in you know working life, but especially when it comes to innovation, yes. we need to get people smashing other with other uh, sort of dom- domain experts, yeah. expertise, and we need to get really different groups to come in and in, in a way that you respect their, their point of view, but it's an opportunity for us to then be able to create a new value. Um, 
So I do that wherever I can. You know, I, I'm constantly looking at teens and thinking, oh, who, who, who's missing in this piece? And even, you know, inside this firm that I'm in, there's 11,000 deep, deep technical, you know, yeah. specialist engineers and urban designers and architects. My, my team, you know, I look at the, the type of people that I've deliberately hired We've got uh, anthropologists, creative writer. Yeah. We've got uh, business people, me, the criminal lawyer. We've got this. We, we are not typical of the of the majority here, but that's again deliberate because again, that's to help bring in that diverse, different way, not better, just different way of thinking and different ways of working. So uh, I am really um, hungry to hire, you know, young people that have have come into their working life very different to, to mine so that I can learn from them. Um, you know, I'm in a reverse mentoring program at the moment. I've got as much to learn from them as I can, I can you know, share my knowledge and networks. So it is incredible. Diversity is, yeah, it's one of the keys to ensuring that we do. We do as a, not only an organisation, but as a community, survive and thrive. I'm going to go from smashing tectonic plates oh, yeah. to clown juggling at the circus. Oh, really? So this is the quick fire out. Oh, this okay. Is to, to wrap it all up. Okay. Um, Do I wear a, a, a bulletproof vest or something? You may need to. Okay. If you got hit Quite by <laughs> if you got hit by a bus today and killed, yes. What is the one thing you would say? I wish I had done that. Uh, finish learning the guitar. What is your most memorable smell? Oh, wow, yes. So growing up in Queensland, just at the beginning of the slip, slop, slap um, ads, so those that are younger than me will think, what is she talking about? Um, We were just starting to put on sunscreen. And so my mother had this kind of this weird coconut oil. Reef tan. Reef that's it. (laughs) I still have it in a plastic bag at home locked away because I – yeah, the minute, uh, not that I've got it out of the bag and smelt it of, of late, but if I got that out now, it would be right back to being yes, a little kid. Yes, I remember Reef 10 holidays to Queensland. That's it. And I think it is probably a class one carcinogen that actually attracts the sun rather than repels it. It probably yeah. does. And now I'm wondering whether I should actually find it and throw it. <laughs> smell it. Yes. Um, if you go any place in the world now for lunch, where would that be? Wow. Oh, my goodness. There are so many good places. There you got one. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if it's still there, but there is some super cool, like, rooftop um, little bars in Istanbul overlooking the Bosphorus. That city blows me away yeah. because I can't believe it sits on Asia and Europe. It, yes. It's, you know, part of two continents, yeah. and it's this place that I go, ooh, it's been – a rising power it's had a historical you know past and you feel this optimism it probably be sitting on one of those sitting in one of those yeah, rooftop right. bars looking out at the sea and hearing the the bells and the mosque bells and yeah i'd like to be there yeah where would you like to take your next holiday going to cambodia for christmas but i south america i think okay it's a big place. Big place. Anywhere in particular? Well, there's just so much history in that sort of whole space and yeah. nature and all. Uh, no, just more a continent that I really don't know that well. 
Artistic side, mm-hmm. favourite movie? I have so many. Yeah, this, is what, this is what happens when you study it as a, you know, <laughs> I had to do German expressionism and Russian avant-garde and... You could you could say an episode of Neighbours was your favourite. Absolutely not. <laughs> I I love um, films by people like Wim, Wen- Wim Wenders, German guy, so things like Wings of Desire, that type of film. Is that my go-to? I've watched so many Studio Ghibli Japanese oh, animes. Yeah, yeah. My, so my fa- okay, if we're going to narrow it, my favourite Studio Ghibli film. Spirited Away. I did like that. I love Kiki's Delivery Service. It would be How's Moving Castle. Right, That would okay. be my fave. Did what culture fascinates you? I don't know enough about the Middle East. I, I feel the more I think I try and understand the politics and the history, the more I realise I don't. <laughs> don't and try. Yeah, so I, I, I am, uh, yeah, curious and would love, would love to know more. So that's one, definitely. I've spent a heck of a lot of time in Asia, working and living, and count, countless. So that would not be where I would scratch the surface. Probably in Middle East. Then I also think of, you know, sub-Saharan and a- African cultures. I, I, I need to know more. Yeah, Jason Shaw, you've given all of us. Uh, an incredible amount of fascinating information. Um, and once we all digest it, no doubt it will change our perception of innovation and how things should, can be done differently. Um, thank you for sharing your time and uh, thank you for being on Discipline. Thank you so much for having me, Tony, and have a lovely Friday. Thank you. Thank you.